Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt. Today, we're discussing shamanism and death. And in this, um, from this perspective, I would like to call in the ancestors in particular. I would like to call them especially in today to help us to understand this transition of death, how to do this in a good way, and why doing it in a good way matters to the living. So I call in all those ancestors who tended another human at this time of transition, all of those ancestors who transitioned well themselves, and all of those ancestors who lived well, who lived so fully and heartfully and passionately that they died beautifully. So I call out to all of these ancestors to be with us here today to bring us their wisdom to bring us all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines, that we might feel the richness of that inheritance, that we might feel the wealth of their wisdom, that we might feel the accumulated value of their lives, and to draw that as nourishment into our own, that we might learn from those who have gone before us. So I call out to these ancestors, yours and mine, to be with us here today to circle round, to hold us well, And in the center of this circle of the ancestors, let us reach down into the earth and to give thanks to this most essential and oldest ancestor, she who was here before there were humans. We give thanks to her for the wonder of her dreaming. For in shamanic cultures, we believe that it was the dreaming of the earth who brought life to the planet. That is that dream that brings life, and it is that dream of life that birthed the dream of humans. And it is the dream of the humans who are our ancestors that brought us to the planet. And it is our dreaming that brings the descendants. So may we be wise and responsible dreamers. And may we give thanks to the earth and let her teach us in this way. Let her teach us how to be dreamers, to dream in a way that supports all life. Let us know this as our home and feel our connection to it, And feel our connection to each other and the interconnectedness to all things. And let us feel that sense of belonging that comes not only from place and time, but from the immortality that comes through humanity for those who have gone before us, through us, and to the descendants. Let us give thanks for this miracle of life and our opportunity to be it here today. And from this place on earth, with our feet firmly granted, the ancestors circling round us, let us reach up to the sky, reaching all the way up to the highest power of the universe, and by whatever name you call this power, call it down. This power goes by many names, but at its core, it is the essence of blessing and protection and generosity. And let us call this essential energy down into ourselves and to the center of our circle to be with us here today that we might know the benevolence of our universe, that we might know the champions in our life and the mentors, those who are here to assist us on our journey without taking it from us. Let us feel all those hands at our back, all those who make the load a bit lighter, that we might feel inspired 
to truly do what we have come here to do. So with the sky above coming into ourselves and into our circle and the earth below drying up into ourselves and into our circle and meeting together in that great love of earth and sky that births all life as we know it here into physical form, let us feel that energy in the center of our own selves, the heart. And call out to the energy of the heart to be with us here today and to do what it is designed uniquely to do, to merge the passions of the belly with the clarity of the mind that we might know why we are here and to use these proceedings today to inspire us to do what we have come here to do. We give thanks for the spirits gathering round. May what needs to be heard be said and may what is said be heard. So thank you all for listening here today. I do need to take a moment here and give thanks for those who allow this show to be here, um, available to all of you listening all over the world. I give thanks to those in Last Mass community, my own students, who have donated generously to keep the show alive. And also I want to give thanks, a special thanks, to Connell McClure, who has donated generously from Australia, and to all the other listeners, listeners who are donating to the show. Um, If this show has been meaningful to you in any way, let us know. Send us a message or go to the Why Shamanism Now site and click on the donate button and feel free to offer any means of support um, to us in that way. Every dollar goes directly to keeping this show on the air and available to everyone who has access to the technology needed to listen. So thank you all for your generous donations. So today, uh, the topic of our show is shamanism and death. And this show is not actually live. We are pre-recording this show because I'm teaching at this time um, a retreat on the exquisite Oregon coast. And we are in a process called Laying the Bones to Rest. So this is a retreat with my fourth-year students. They're in the fourth year of the cycle of transformation. And we are literally laying the bones of our ancestors who are not resting well, to rest by offering them a second chance. We, the living, know what the unresolved issues of these ancestors have wrought in our lives. We know this for a fact because we are living it. And so in this retreat, we have this opportunity to journey back to these ancestors and to say to them, we realize you didn't know this at the time, But your legacy will be whatever, will be ultimately illness and dysfunction, alcoholism, rape, racism, all these isms, all these problems, all of these challenges that humanity faces today. And when you go back to an ancestor and let them know, you know, by the way, this is what your life stands for. This is what it amounts to in the future. I am here as living proof of that. Most of the ancestors, most, not all, but most, are pretty horrified. And so we offer them a second chance. We ask, would you like to change? Would you like the chance to change what your life stands for? Would you like the chance to change what you have handed down to your descendants? And most of them say, yeah, we would. And then, with the help of spirit, we are able, through this process, to offer these ancestors for a moment the energy of our own free will so that change can happen. It doesn't change history, but it changes how the energy of these ancestors are held here in 
the realm of the living. And it allows the energy of these ancestors, ultimately, once their lives have been reconciled and brought to a place of peace, it allows these ancestors to clear out, to, to leave the realm of the living and move on to the land of the dead where they belong. And I've learned a great deal about life from working with the dead. And that's really what this show is about today is what have I learned? What have we, myself and my students, learned about life from our work with the dead? So for me, my first um, deep, deep life, truly, truly life-changing teaching um, from working with the dead came um, in the days following September 11th in Manhattan. Um, for those of you that don't know, my shamanic life began in Manhattan and my main client base has been in Manhattan for the last 20 years. And at the time that um, on September 11th, I was actually living in Seattle, but I was still traveling to Manhattan at that point three, sometimes four times a year and staying for a couple of weeks and continuing to work with my clients and my students there. Um, and then going back to Seattle and working on the Encyclopedia of Shamanism. And so this event occurred um, really days before I was planning to go to Manhattan anyway. And the, the issue then in air traffic kept me from traveling. Um, so by the time we were able to fly out, I arrived in Manhattan on the 15th of September and began working not only with the, the clients that I had, the living that were there and had many new issues to deal with, um, but I started working with the dead to the best of my ability as one single humble person, um, just trying to do what I could to help. And, and in, in even preparation to help, I, I was doing journeys just going into the invisible world and the energy of Manhattan post-trauma and just trying to understand, first off, what was going on and where might my abilities be um, best used. Because I really didn't presume that I knew anything. I was just trying to help. And in this journey... What had happened is that the the amount of um, hatred and destruction, the amount, I, I can't even think of all the words to use, but basically this sort of quantum amount of damage done for, for hate-based reasons um, had created a great ripping and a tearing in the energy fabric of reality there, physical reality there, right in Manhattan, all of so many people dying so suddenly in one place. Not that there have not been as many people or more dying in war or traumas elsewhere, but I guess the point is this kind of thing happens. Um, this just happened to be a traumatic event that I was witnessing in a sense. So anyway, so I, I, I went into that, um, work with the spirit world and just offered up the energy of my free will because humanity's free will is enormously powerful in manifesting things and allowing things to change and to move. And so for the spirit world, having human free will energy available allows things to happen that the spirit world can't do on its own. And so I was basically just trying to learn and be helpful. 
And ultimately, at some point in this journey, I saw um, Grandmother Spider Woman, who is a, um, a grandmother helping spirit energy from many the stories of many different North American native peoples. And Grandmother Spider Woman weaves the web that interconnects life in most of these stories. And so I was watching Grandmother Spider Woman reweaving this web of physical reality that had had been torn asunder. And she looks at me as I arrive and figure out what's going on. And she says, you sure have made a mess this time. And I I remember thinking, who, me? I mean, I wasn't even here. Um, And she looked at me with this stare that was just like a knife jabbing me into the wall. You know, I was a bug on a pin, just uh, with her gaze. And she said, you, Yes, you, all of you. And I I was still confused. And she said, humanity, you have made a big mess this time. And again, it's not like she was saying this is the biggest mess that had ever made, been made by humanity. But she was saying that you, humanity, had made a real big mess this time. And that was the most important teaching that came to me in that whole time there working with the dead is that it wasn't about us and them. There is no us and them. From the spirit world's perspective, there is only humanity, and we are one. And we can use our free will to pretend we're not as long as we want to, but it's not true. That the deeper energetic truth is and has always been and will always be that humanity is one. We are one in the eyes of spirit. And this fighting between religious sects or political powers or just this fighting of one group of humanity with another is no different than the fighting for life of cells in a body that is out of balance. That humanity is one body here on earth. And that was the most powerful teaching that came to me in working with the dead. The whole time I was there, I was there for a month working, working with the living and the dead and dealing with the ramifications of this event. But that, that teaching from grandmother shaped everything I did in that time. That nowhere was there the luxury of seeing any of this as being about the other. It was all us. Every moment of it, every bit of damage, every bit of beauty that came out of it, everything was us. That we are one. That was a big message. Um, the next piece that I learned that was really profound for me at this time, because we also have to remember, I'm not, I don't practice traditional shamanism. I practice authentic shamanism, but it is non-traditional. So I don't have a lot of people explaining things to me. So I'm pretty much learning everything the hard way. Um, but, um, one of the most powerful things I learned as I started to work with the dead and to help them to cross over in the process of getting out of the land of living and into the land of the dead, because the conditions around September 11th were the worst possible conditions for the dead actually realizing that they're dead and crossing over in a good way. It was a surprise. Um, The people involved were not aware that they were at war. I mean, we could certainly argue now politically that, that, we were at war and we should have known it, but we didn't. Um, and so surprise, um, 
on people being unaware that there was a problem in the first place. I mean, there was nothing going on in the lives of these people that were in the towers in Manhattan that day that made them think that this was the day they were going to die and why and how. I mean, it was all just unbelievable. And the all of these things create the um, sort of problematic conditions for people who died actually die well. Okay. So with that said, so I'm helping the dead to cross over, which is the job of shamans. Traditionally, it's called psychopomp in contemporary literature, but it doesn't really matter what it's called. They've been doing it forever. Why? Because shamanic people understand that the presence of the dead in the realm of the living is problematic for both. The presence of the dead around the living is hard on us, especially the the most innocent and the most vulnerable of us, those that have a certain amount of mental instability. Um, We're all affected by the presence of the dead. The dead are meant to be in the land of the dead, happily, um, doing what dead people are supposed to do. And the living are meant to be here in the land of the living, happily doing what living people are meant to do. And when they mix, it's problematic for both. Okay, so again, on to the point. The point, one of the most beautiful things that I learned about how important it is that the dead go where the dead belong and the living stay here where the living belong is seeing the very special and very particular spirit energy that extends to us from the invisible world to the recently dead to assist the recently dead on their journey from this realm to the other realm and that this spirit help is indescribably beautiful in all ways the grace the energy of what I would say heart for lack of a better word although this energy is absolutely not human these spirit energies are not human Um, But what was most important for me to see, other than the incredible generosity of this energy coming to assist us at this important time of transition and transformation, not only was this energy abundant and truly, truly the essence of compassion and care, and in that I think love, but this energy was utterly and completely undefined by religion. That it was universally available in exactly the same quality and quantity to every single person, regardless of faith or faithlessness or atheism or agnosticism or whatever. It didn't matter that our relationship with spirit has pretty much absolutely nothing to do with religion. That's what I really saw is that these energies from the invisible world that were such a gracious, compassionate gift from the invisible world to help us on this critical transition were without gender, without particular form. I think because I was human, I saw them in in a somewhat human-like form, sort of more than human, greater than life-size form. But I'm not so sure. I mean, I think if I'd been a cat, they probably all would have been cats. I I don't think that they are necessarily human. I believe that they take the shape that is most comforting to us in this time of transition, the shape that is least distracting from what it is that we need to do, the shape that will make us feel the most cared for in this transition 
And so as I, as people were crossed over from the land of the living into this realm where these beings could begin to assist them, they shifted so subtly as they greeted a soul, a human spirit that, that of the dead. They shifted so beautifully and subtly. I, I had to really pay attention to even see it happening from this very general being. They all were sort of the same in a sense, although enormous in their energy. Um, as they would greet a person they were going to assist, they would subtly shift and become, you know, sort of male or female, become an angel or, um, you know, like an enlightened master to become whatever it is that would make that person feel the most held, the most tended, the most cared for. It was astounding to watch. The compassion was heartbreaking in its beauty. To watch these beings so utterly unattached and untethered by form, to shapeshift so subtly and so beautifully to tend these frightened, confused humans. It was beyond words. And in this, I came to understand how important this transition is to get these newly dead beings out of this realm and on to the path to the spirit, to the land of the dead, for lack of a better term, where they can complete their journey and do what need, what, what, what is right in, in essence for the real energies not what we think is right based on our religion or our, our philosophy or our attitudes about things, but what is right energetically because the realms interconnect. All the different realms, and I don't even know all the realms, but the truth is all the realms interconnect. They share energy that we, what we do here matters in many, 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 many realms. And I saw how important this passing, this transformation is not just to the individual or the family um, connected by blood or by heart to this particular person's passing, but to the whole system. That beings of such magnitude and magnificence would so compassionately and so selflessly offer themselves to this process. It was unbelievable. And I came to understand as, we, as I worked with these beings and these people these dead people, day after day, that this help is only available for a short period of time. And this is why cultures have traditions around um, death and funeral that have time frames to it. That these people, uh, I'm sorry, these beings are only available to the people for a limited period of time that, that, in other words, it's such an energy expenditure for the big energy system that runs everything to extend these beings to us to help that they can't be available all the time. And they're frankly, normally, only available for about four days, which is why it's critically important that we die well, that we can be ready to let go of it all and cross within four days from the moment of our death, because that's the time frame 
that these beings are extended to us to assist us on that journey with their love and their compassion and their grace and their magnificence. And after that, we're on our own. And it's a rough journey on our own. And this is the piece the shaman has always tried to fill in for. But it's a lot of work for us. And it is effortless for these beings and effortless for the soul being transported when they go in a timely way with these beings. So this was, this was a profound teaching for me to understand the importance of death and dying well and being ready to go when you go. And why it is that when people aren't ready to go when they go, when they miss that four-day window, why they stay stuck here. Because it's really energy expensive for us as the living to get them out of here after the fact. So that was a really profound um, teaching for me. So then as I continued to work with the dead, uh, then there was what I learned from the dead themselves. And one of the most depressing things I learned from the dead is that death doesn't really change anything for the dead. Um, The dead, you are whoever you lived your life to be. That death doesn't make you any smarter, doesn't make you any more compassionate, it doesn't make you any anything other than exactly who you've been. And now you have no free will, no creativity, no innovation, none of the energies of life to compensate for your own lack of development. And that was one of the hardest things to stomach, uh, actually, as a human, to realize that nothing changes when you die. You are exactly who you are when you die at the moment of your death. It doesn't get any better. So what we wrought with our life, what we are, what we create with our life is it. This is it. And it is critically important then that we live well. The other thing that I learned, with that said though, there are people... You know, partly it's because we have this thing about time. We always think there's going to be more time. We always think there's going to be that day that we can put those beliefs into practice. But at the moment, you know, I need to go make some money or I need to raise these kids or I need to do whatever. And we put things off. But the other thing that we saw at that time with all of these just just multitudes of dead people to work with is that there were people that did change at the moment of their death. So they still had enough life. They still had a connection to their own free will to transform. And there was an amazing story. I cannot, I'm sorry, remember at the moment where it was published. But it was um, a woman who was flying at the time of this happening. So what that means is she didn't know it was happening until after the fact. And she was flying in an airplane somewhere. I can't remember where. And um, she fell asleep on the flight. And on this flight, she had one of those profound dreams, one of those dreams that doesn't feel like a dream. It feels like a kind of reality. And in this dream, she dreamt she was with a bunch of people who were trapped in a certain way. And the, and the windows were were the way out, and they realized that if they could um, become light, if they could let go of all that bound them, all that weighed them down in their life, if they could let go of these things and become light, that they could fly. 
And I think the play on word between light as in weight and light as in bright is, is apt here. And so what she saw was people leaping from these windows. And when they could let go of the weight in the moment of the leaping, that their souls lifted out of their bodies and flew up into a great sort of magnificence and generosity and compassionate energy above. And that those who couldn't quite let go of the weight just fell like stones. And this dream, she woke from this dream. I think she was in the process of leaping. I can't remember exactly the story. But the point is she woke from this dream weeping, just inconsolable, weeping. Because there was something about this dream that had been so real for her. And here she was flying in a plane and it was all very confusing for her and she was disoriented. And it was only later that day when she landed and they got caught up on the news and they found out about what had happened that she realized that she had been with the people who had leapt out the windows of the towers and that she had, that it had been real in a sense, not for her, but for them and that she had somehow been with them in her dream. And so what this taught me was that we do have that possibility at the end to, while we still have a little free will at our fingertips to let go, to release all that is undone, to forgive what needs to be forgiven, to settle our debts, to, to release people from their indebtedness to us, to allow our heart and our soul to soar free from that which is unresolved in our life. If we can detach from that, to let it go, to release it and surrender to the greater truth of who we are, which is that we are always free and light and magnificent. We always are the soul's purpose we came here to be. We're just stuck in the process of trying to live it. But if we can let that process go, then we can fly free. And that was another thing that was important to recognize is that that moment of our dying is a choice. And that can be a very powerful choice. So as I continue to work with people, there's um, a way of working with the dead where you're essentially creating a rainbow, a bridge of rainbow energy that bridges from here in the land of the living to pretty much as far as you can go into the process of getting to the land of the dead if you're actually a living person. And it's a way to get spirits out of this realm and on their way into the spirit realm where they can be tended by spirit and make their way to all the way to the land of the dead. And some people perceive of this bridge as going, this rainbow bridge is getting all the way to the land of the dead. Some people don't. It just depends, but it doesn't really matter for the sake of discussion here today. What was sort of funny to me in working with people at the site at, at ground zero was that, um, this whole rainbow bridge concept didn't make sense to anybody because they didn't really understand death. They didn't understand where they were going or why they would get there. So this idea of crossing this bridge, um, it didn't resonate with anybody. And so I decided to work with what was in their brains. And so most contemporary people have a sense of dying and going up or down, I guess. Um, and so we, I made an elevator, a rainbow elevator. I mean, it doesn't really matter. But the point is, people didn't get the bridge, and they got elevators. And so we made this rainbow elevator. And this rainbow elevator was available for anybody who wanted to leave ground zero and rise up and go to where they could begin to resolve their life, connect with those amazing, magnificent beings that I talked about, at least for the first eight days. They could connect with those beings and get help in crossing over. And for, you know, when I could, I would be there, you know, basically being the elevator operator, you know, bringing people in and taking them up and letting them off at the top and connecting with 
with the spirit help that would help them and, you know, doing this day after day. Um, but what was interesting is what I found in that is that people were really ignorant of death. There's, there's this, there really, people really do believe that, you know, the, the things you, that are guaranteed in life are death and taxes and that death is some easy thing that you just die and it's all taken care of and you have no more responsibilities after that. And that's really problematic because you actually have to get out of here. Yeah. There's a path. Yeah. You, ha- you have to do stuff. And if you're not able as the people who in the woman's dream, the people who were able to let go of being a human and reach up to the spirit world and become spirit and, and accept that spirit help in the moment. If you're not able to do that in the moment, it's hard work. And so what was so, I mean, comical eventually, but sad and telling is that we culturally do each other a horrible disservice by never talking about death, by not ever helping people understand what happens when you die and creating this ridiculous myth that is automatic, that once you're dead, all your responsibilities are gone. It's all over. You just die and someone else takes care of you. I mean, it's a ridiculous myth. And, and so eventually over the month, after a while, the dead realized they weren't going to get rescued and they really did have to accept that they were dead. And then they began to leave ground zero and wander the city and try to get out. And one of the things about Manhattan is it's got a lot of skyscrapers. And eventually near the end of my time that I was there, I started finding dead people and not necessarily just the the newly dead from the event, but there's dead people all over Manhattan starting to climb these buildings sort of, you know, a la King Kong. And so there's these dead people crawling all over these tallest skyscrapers and, you know, you can't get, get there from here. You know, it's like, it's like, they're not tall enough, these skyscrapers. So there were these dead beginning to congregate all over these skyscrapers. And I'm thinking, and I'd realized at this point after working with the dead for weeks is that, you know, I had to work with what was in their heads and what's in people's heads is movies. You know, there's no good information about death. Nobody's heard the Bardos. I mean, nobody knows because we don't do what indigenous people did. The first stories children learned was what to do if they died. It was the gift that their parents gave them so they didn't have to be afraid. And so here we have these people that are dead and they're afraid to die. They don't know what to do. They're confused. They're climbing these buildings because they have a feeling they need to go up. But they don't know how to get there and they don't know where, you know, they don't know. And so the Matrix, uh, so a la Matrix in a sense. So I took this helicopter in the spirit world, took a helicopter and would fly around these buildings at the top and get people to get in. And then take them up to where they needed to go to begin to reconcile their life and begin and to continue the – to take them somewhere useful, frankly, where they could begin this process of truly crossing over. Because the thing is, if people are stuck this hard here in the land of the living, if dead people are stuck this hard here in the land of the living, then their life is not reconciled. That's a given. And so they need to go to a place, an intermediate place between the land of the living and the land of the dead where they can reconcile their lives. And so this was basically, you know, the helicopter that would take you to this next stage. And so I'm flying around this building trying to get these people, dead people, to get in the helicopter. And I'm flying as close as I can. And the people aren't getting and – I, and I keep saying to them, jump. And they keep saying, I can't. I'll die. <laughs> I just remember getting so frustrated going, you're already dead. So this inability to grasp 
death and the need to let go of all of the trappings of life, even the fear of death, and get in the frigging conveyance, whether it's a helicopter or a compassionate spirit or whatever you believe it's going to be, but believe in something and go. And so that part was really frustrating. I really realized that the fact that we do not teach people about death is an enormous cultural disservice that we do to the living. And then I guess the final thing, I've already said this, um, but I really saw it in working with the dead, is that we are precisely who we have crafted, crafted ourselves to be with our life. Because one of the things that happened, because, you know, there are a lot of dead people in one place. And once I convinced the firemen who, well, okay, the whole story is this. I just helped anybody who wanted help. And there were a lot of pushy people who wanted help. And so I helped them. And what I found in helping these people is they were exactly the people they had been in life. They were pushy. They wanted to go first. They didn't care about anybody else. And I found people holding on to the soul parts of their own children, refusing to let those soul parts go because they believed they owned these kids, that their children owed them something. And this this refusal to let go was not only keeping the dead person from crossing over completely – But it was damaging the lives of their own children. I mean, these are parts of their own soul, for God's sakes. And no matter how much I tried to educate these people and help them understand the right thing to do, these people believe what they believed. And there were so many manifestations of present-day contemporary people in their ignorance of spirit, their soul theft, their um, dysfunction, that I finally got frustrated, frankly, since this was all my own donated time and decided to work with people who deserve my help. And so I started working with the relief workers who had died in the process and particularly the firemen. And so then in working with the firemen, what I found is that they were all still waiting to be rescued because, and this was two, three weeks into it because they believed so strongly in each other and in their ability to be heroes in the best sense. I don't mean that in any negative sense at all. And so it took a while for me to convince them that they were, yes, indeed dead and that it had been weeks And because, of course, there's no time for them and that they weren't going to get found. And it was, more, it was easier to convince them or it was easier to get them to be willing to not be dead, to be stuck anymore by giving them a job. And so basically I asked them to help me with the rest of the dead. And, of course, they were willing to do that in a heartbeat. And so the firemen, the spirits of the dead firemen, helped me for a while to continue to convey people up the rainbow elevator. And other firemen were at the top receiving people and connecting them with spirit help. And, I, and, I, and the firemen were very, very helpful, not only in finding all the other dead firemen, but in assisting others who were willing to, to go. Um, and so that was a positive sense of I really saw how those people who cultivated loyalty and service and belief in, um, you know, helping each other as a group, you know, that those people had those qualities at death. Um, There are some stories about some of the fire chiefs or captains and their commitment um, their commitment to the men that served under them that I, I still to this day can't speak of without crying, obviously. Um, and so the story of the firemen for me was I really saw that that which we cultivate every day in our lives makes us who we are. And sometimes that's really, really beautiful. 
And this was put into this really sharp contrasting counterpoint to this other person who, and in death, was really pretty horrifying. He was miserly and greedy and mean. And, and, and the way this manifested is he kept stealing the rainbow bridge or the rainbow elevator. I would go away. I would live my life. I would work with my clients and I would come back at night to do some work with the dead and it would be gone again. And it would always be this person who kept stealing it. And I, I finally had a confrontation with this spirit, you know, because I was trying to be compassionate and helpful, but dang it, you know, this was getting old. And I said to him, you know, give this back to me. And he looked at me and he said with these eyes that were absolutely empty of any fire of love or compassion or humanity, he looked at me and he said, I was a miser and a greedy cheat in my life. Why would you expect me to be anything different now? Fuck off. I mean, he was so mean to me, cussing at me, stealing my rainbow bridge because it was the hottest commodity down there. I mean, it was the value that was there in this realm of the dead, in this, you know, ground zero place of the dead. It was the thing that was of value. And he kept stealing it. And so to be honest, what I finally did because he was also unwilling to leave, absolutely unwilling to leave that he could continue to take energy here and he was going to do it and that there was nothing that I could do at that time to convince him otherwise. And so finally I just trapped him because he was so damaging to my efforts to try to help people. I just trapped him. I let him free before I left, but I was so irritated and frustrated dealing with this guy. And I really saw how we are what we create with our life, period. You don't get any better or, frankly, any worse when you die. It's no different. And so these were really, really powerful teachings that I got from the dead. It helped me really understand that everything I do every day matters. It all creates who I am. And, and, and you know, the deepest teaching from that whole traumatic event was you do not know if today is a good day to die. So you better live as if it is. And that was the deep teaching for me every day there in Manhattan is you do not know. And so you must live so that today is a good day to die. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is what does that mean? What does that mean for you? And I asked myself that every day for many years after uh, September 11th, um, what that meant for me. Are you living in a way that today would truly be a good day to die? Or are your accounts unsettled? Are you in debt to other living beings? Are you in debt to the spirit world? Are you living in a way where your affairs are not settled? You are not able to leave in peace. And so this, this was a profound um, teaching for me at that time. So then the next sort of constant training ground from the dead in my life is ancestral healing. And I've talked about this on, on different shows, but I do ancestral healing one-on-one um, -on -one with people. It's actually one of the shamanic healing forms I can do long distance actually quite easily. For those of you who are listening in, you know, Afghanistan or Germany or, you know, Bali or something like that. I mean, I can, I can do this long distance. Um, Unlike some other shamanic healing forms, I don't do very well long distance. And that basically what we're looking at is these people who haven't died well, haven't lived well and haven't died well, or 
are die in such a way that they can't get out. It's so sudden. It's so um, it's an accident. Um, you know, whatever. Anyway, my point is what the ancestral healing we have to do is on those ancestors whose energy is stuck here and that they need to be cleared their energy. They need help clearing their energy so they can move out of this realm to the land of the dead. Now, this is not just traditional psychopomp work. What this is also about is how do we clear the accounts for this person? How do we settle? How do we allow a transformation to occur in this person's actual life so that the pattern that they've set in motion here in the land of the living can be cleared? And so I'm just going to share a story with you to, for, to be an example of this. So, and I'll share the first story. I've shared this before, but it's the clearest and the simplest example. I worked many, many years ago, I worked with a woman who showed up and her presenting issue was that she was physically fertile, but unable to conceive. And she and her husband were practicing a lot and they still were unable to conceive. And he was physically fertile as well. There was no reason these two people who loved each other deeply and dearly wanted children should not be able to conceive children. Nonetheless, they could not. She'd been through years of, um, fertility treatments and things and they still hadn't been able to conceive and she came to me for shamanic healing and I said well shoot I don't know I'll try and I ended up doing the first ancestral healing that I ever did and I went back to the source of the problem for her which was way way back many 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 generations somewhere in some European country or what is now a European country there was a man and a woman who lived very humbly on the land and just worked the land. There was nothing really special about these two people. Only the woman was pretty intelligent and very loving, and she loved this guy. And the guy wasn't really very smart, but he was very strong. And in, given the fact that they had to make their life off the land, that was a good thing. And she was smart enough for both of them. And she um, – so anyway, he wasn't very smart, though, and life frustrated him a lot. And a lot of times when he got overwhelmed and frustrated, he just would hit something. That's just how he was. And so in a sense, he was a violent man, mostly because – he got frustrated a lot. So anyway, one night there were certain misunderstandings. There were some problems. I can't remember all of the reasons, but he got very angry and very violent. He was a very big man and he accidentally killed his wife in anger at her in front of their child. And so what the child took in from that is that the, the danger in violent masculine energy. Not that masculine energy is violent, but that when it gets violent, it is life is absolutely life-threatening. And over the generations, as this pattern got turned down, uh, got handed down, and it twisted and turned and got handed down, by the time it reached this woman's generation, essentially her ovaries were refusing to bring life into the world out of the fear of this violence. And that in clearing this ancestral pattern, giving this man a choice to undo what he did and crossing the man and the woman and the infant all over where they belonged and bringing reconciliation and peace to this simple human story um, that was frankly an accident. And then clearing that energy out through the line to the living woman that within, I think, 12 or 13 months, um, I received a birth announcement that um, they had not only conceived, but had given birth to a beautiful, healthy child. And so I thought of her as a miracle baby, 
But the more I worked with the ancestors, the more I realized this, this will be normal if we can just do this work, if we can just clear this energy. And what I've learned from working with the ancestors, one, is that there is hope that in this way we are able to heal these lines that get handed down through the family, not only of um, potentially able to heal. Um, if this is at the root of the problem, not only handing down things like alcoholism or addiction or um, misogyny or, you know, racism or whatever things get handed down through the line, but also illnesses that are hereditary or potentially changeable um, through this work. Um, there was a woman whose depression ended up being a pattern, a belief about the world handed down by her ancestors that the world was sort of basically that the world was gloomy and depressing and then you died because of their life in a particular place and um, struggling with weather and famine and basically a really hard life and they didn't live very long and that's pretty much what they thought the world was and that belief got handed down. And so her depression was really what was at the root of her depression was this deep belief about reality that her ancestors had handed down. And so even things we consider illnesses, if they're handed down through the ancestral line, there is the potential that they can be cleared through clearing this, these ancestral, unresolved ancestral patterns. And so this is the hope for ourselves and our descendants. Um, the issue is this energy is not that easy to clear. You can't just learn to journey and go do it. The other issue is at this time, the thing I've learned from doing this work is that the balance has tipped where those unresolved patterns are beginning to run over us now. There's so much that is unresolved and we are so unable to not be hijacked by them that they're picking up momentum. We're kind of tipped on the downward slope now. And so it's very important that we begin to deal with this. We need to get at it. The hope is we can do it but we do need to get at it. And so some of the main things that we've learned from working with these ancestors is the first thing is everything matters. That the warriorship, the daily warriorship it takes to complete things, to bring closure to the matters in our life, to live in a way where we settle our accounts, to be willing. Um, my teacher, Daniel, spoke of flying all the way from the U.S. to China simply to say what he should have said to reconcile and bring closure to a relationship. Um, so it's really understanding how important it is to complete things, to bring closure, to settle matters, to try to reconcile our life. Reconciling for me means it's brought to a kind of peace. It, it doesn't mean everybody likes each other. It doesn't mean you even want to talk to the person again. But the issue itself has come to some kind of completion and closure. And that all these things matter in all realms, that you have these relationships with the spirit world as much as people here in the physical world, as well as with the environment and the land. The other thing that we've learned is that these issues are very complex here because they've picked up momentum. Every generation, they're not resolved. They, they get stronger. They kind of twist and get stranger. And they're very complex and hard to understand here in the physical world. But that every single one of these patterns, well, almost every single one of these patterns, the gross majority of them, go back to a person in a very different situation, time-wise, but a person just like you or me, exactly like you or me, who had a really, really bad day in a really challenging situation and caved and made the wrong choice and didn't live 
didn't use whatever life remained to undo that. And so that's important thing to remember that at its source, most of these patterns are easily transformable. The other two main things that we really learn from doing this work is that what ties us here mostly is unexpressed emotions, unfelt feelings, our unwillingness to live in and and be clear in our emotional body that it distorts people in life, which we know, but it distorts us in death and it holds us here. And one of the one of the big things culturally we find as culturally meaning, sorry, meaning Westerners, people from Western schools of thought, is we have a particular inability to express grief, judgments around grief and how to express it. And this in particular hijacks life as well as death. And it holds us here like no other emotion does. And so I wanted to share uh, quickly as we're coming to the end of our show here today, a quote by Wayne Mueller. If we follow what we love, if we live deeply and attentively in this moment, we will not feel bound by regret at the moment of our death. And this could not say it more simply or clearly. What we find in working with these ancestors is that it's simply how we live, the quality of our life and our heart and our attention to each moment allows us to die well and to not be bound here by regret. And what we have learned is that humanity is healed through this work, not just your ancestral line and your descendants, but all of humanity. And that this can't be altruistic work. It is our focus on our soul's purpose and what stands in the way of our ability to mobilize our love and power and wisdom and vision in service of that soul's purpose that guides us in which ancestors to heal. And in that way, we don't get lost in our own dysfunction. And so these are some of the main things. There's lots that we're learning from healing the ancestors, but these are some of the main things. And I guess the piece that has been helpful for myself and for my clients is what we, what we learn in the very first year of the four-year training is to embrace death as an ally. And, that, and to, to understand, like for me now, if I have a question about living my life fully, I don't bother with anybody but death. I just journey straight to death and I ask death because death, I've come to realize that death is absolutely the expert. You know, as an archetypal being, as a helping spirit, death is an expert in living fully. And that that is what death as an ally means. It means living, doing what you would do today, um, asking yourself, what would you do today if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? You know, living so that today would be a good day to die, that you know that you have done in some way what you've come here to do, that this is the great value of death as an ally. And that in, in shamanism, one of the things that we see, and I see this in people when they go into a great fear of death, is that death is stalking them, not to kill them, but to get them to live. And, and this is a very, um, it, it's, it, it's a very paradoxical thing for the Western mind to grasp. It probably makes more sense to those who are, are in a more of a Taoistic perspective, a yin and yang perspective of things. But what I find almost always when a person feels like they're being stalked by death, um, when they're not remotely close to dying, um, when they're being stalked by death, is death is trying to invite them to live. 
is trying to offer them the assistance death has to help us to kill off that part of ourself that is keeping us from truly living. And one of the quotes that I, I actually keep on my desk all the time is that death is only one of many ways to lose your life. The dangers of not doing what you perceive of as your destiny are greater than anything else. This is Alva um, Simon and, or Simone. And this is, this is what, what we learn in working with death shamanically is that death shows up to remind us to live. And if death is stalking you, if you are overcome by a fear of death, it's because you're being given an opportunity to have expert help in killing off the part of yourself that is keeping you from your destiny. And this, to me, is the great value of death. And so there are many paths we could go today in this conversation, but it would go on much longer, speaking of death as the ally and all of the ways we can work with this in shamanism. And also speaking about death and the value of death from the uh, more of a Taoistic perspective of yin and yang and the kinds of things that Lao Tzu and others speak of in their writings. For example, when I let go of what I am, I become what I might be. This is a quote or an, uh, a translation from Lao Tzu. Another one that I have on my desk is mourn your victories. And Taoistically, that's talking about understanding that when you have expressed something fully, it's now dying. So let it go and move on to the next thing. So for me, what this all comes around to is that it's all about movement. It's all about being constantly in the transformation and the movement from the woman that I am to the woman that I could be. And to approach that not as a great black or white life or death perspective, but as a dance. And that for me, it's always a dance between dynamics, between what is living, what is expressed, and what is now dying. And, and letting that go, blessing it, having thanks for it, and letting it go, and calling up the next thing. And that for me, this is like dancing. And so I wanted to close here today um, with a divine invitation by Hafiz, uh, translated by Daniel Ladinsky in I Heard God Laughing. So again, this is called a divine invitation. And I believe that this is, this is the essence of what I've been trying to say here today. You have been invited to meet the friend. No one can resist a divine invitation. That narrows down all of our choices to just two. We can come to God dressed for dancing or be carried on a stretcher to God's ward. We can come to God dressed for dancing or be carried on a stretcher to God's ward. May you all dress for dancing this week. Have a great week. So I give thanks to the helping spirits for gathering round, to the ancestors, to the earth below, the sky above, and to the heart that unites us all. I give thanks to all of those of you who have donated to the show that keep it alive. Know that you can find out more information by emailing me at christina at org, or just go online to the website lastmaskcenter.org. Um, thank you all, and I look forward to having you join me next week. 